short and sweet from the choir, but uh, that's good. It's good. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for another chance to come together to worship you. Your son has said in, in John 4 that you are looking for those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. Those who will worship you with the right heart and with the right doctrine. Those who will worship you in accordance with a love for you and in accordance with your word. And so I pray this morning that would be our aim. I pray this morning that as we sung at the very beginning of our service that falsehood would drift away. That, 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 that you would open our eyes and illumine us to the truth. Because it's the truth we also read in John that sets a man free. So, Father, we come to you, and I pray we do so in that spirit. That your word might speak to us, and that we might be built up as disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ, to glorify you in all we do. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. Well, we're going to get back to Luke soon, but this morning I ask you to turn with me in your Bible to 2 Kings 13. 2 Kings 13, where we're going to be looking at one of the stranger episodes in all the Old Testament, which is saying something because there are some awfully strange episodes in the Old Testament. But it, it, it's kind of weird, and it's written in kind of a weird way, so we're going to have to be thinking. You know, you're going to have to be thinking and paying attention this morning, uh, loving the Lord your God with all of your mind, because that, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be students of the Word, and so this is going to be a little more, uh, I don't know, uh, not academic is not a word I want to use, but we're going to have to be thinking and, and drawing upon other Scripture, and, and which is necessary to get the gist of what we're about to read. And I'm looking forward to trying to communicate what's going on here because when we think of Second Kings, the word that should probably come to our mind is judgment. I mean, it's just a bad book. It's bad news all around. From, from start to finish, it chronicles the, the fall of Israel, the fall of Judah. Both of them end up in exile by the end of this book. And there aren't many happy times in Second Kings, but there is a lot of sin. There is a great deal of depravity. There's a great deal of, of a deserving holy retribution from God. But here in Second Kings 13, in the midst of judgment, there is also this little gem of some really undeserved grace. And of course, grace is always undeserved. It's unmerited favor. It's God showing favor to those who don't deserve it. So why does he do that here? And how would those receiving God's grace respond? 2 Kings 13, we're going to start in verse 10. We're going to go to verse 25, which is at the end of the chapter. But we're going to see how God was working and what his Holy Spirit wants us to know. So let's read it. It says, In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did in his might with all with which he fought against Amaziah king of Judah 
Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on the throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now let me stop there and say that you've got two Joashes in this passage. You've got a Joash in the south in Judah, and you've got a Joash in the north in Israel. And the, 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 the one in the north is also called Jehoash, which is why that other alternate name is used in verse 10. So we've got a, a, a summary there of his reign, but we're going to find out more about his reign now. When Elisha, verse 14, when Elisha became sick with the illness with, of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He said, Open the window toward the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Aram, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz, his father. Three times Joash defeated him, and recovered the cities of Israel. Russ is up here laughing at me, I think, for all these names. I hope to, if you're in a fog already, I hope to, to blow the fog away, hopefully. Um, what we've got here is the account of one last encounter between the prophet Elisha and the king of Israel. We've got a a summary statement about a prophecy arising from that encounter and what seems to be a very out-of-place recounting of a resurrection that takes place thrown right into the middle of the, of, of, of the account. A corpse coming into contact with Elisha's bones is compelling, but its placement, and, and I don't know if, if you thought this as I was reading through it, but its placement right in the middle of this larger narrative about Israel's international relations is odd. But nothing, I hope you know by now, nothing is in Scripture by accident. God has woven these things together in His Word 
to paint for us a picture, to paint a picture for His people. And hopefully we can admire that picture by the end of our time here today. But our text picks up with the introduction of Joash. Again, he's also called Jehoash. He's the king of Israel here, which is the northern kingdom. Remember, the the kingdom has been divided for some time now. You've got Israel to the north, the ten tribes, and then you've got the two tribes in the south, uh, Judah. And uh, not much is given to us about Joash's reign, except what we're we're reading now, and there's a little account in, in, in chapter 14, but... He's the son of Jehoahaz, we, we know that. Uh, other than that, we don't get a whole lot about him. So what we do get is important. And what little we get says that what? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's not unique because every king of the north, every king of the divided kingdom of Israel is said to have done evil in the sight of the Lord. Rather than being devoted to the law of the Lord, which is what God had intended the kings of his people to do. If you go back to Deuteronomy, we see this. Rather than be devoted to the law of the Lord, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was that first king of the divided kingdom. He was uh, an idolatrous king, uh, uh, just an unconscionable kind of rebellion. You know, one golden calf is not good enough to worship. Let's make two. That's what Jeroboam did. Um, Just a, a terrible king. And practically all of the kings of that northern kingdom followed in in Jeroboam's footsteps. None of them are said to have done good or right in the sight of the Lord. They sinned, and what does it say? They made Israel sin as well. But then, on the other hand, you have Elisha. Elisha had long been God's prophet in the land. He was the successor to Elijah. He often kind of gets overlooked because Elijah is this titan in the Old Testament. But Elisha kind of gets overlooked, but he's very important as well. He's, he's kind of underrated. Uh, he's One of my favorite stories is about Elisha in the, in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 2, right after Elisha goes up in the whirlwind and to chariot to heaven. Uh, these, uh, these youths come out of the woods and they're, they're screaming at Elisha, you know, making fun of him for being bald. And then some female bears come out of the woods and maul the youths. I mean, it's not funny, but I laugh every time I read it. Um, but Elisha is one of those underrated guys in the Old Testament. He was the voice for the Lord for many years in a nation that was categorically rejecting the Lord. I mean, Israel was rampant in their rebellion against God. But here was Elisha being God's instrument of mercy because their, their rare military victories over Aram, which is also called Syria, Israel's main rival other than Judah was, was Syria, their rare military victories were often attributed to the prayers and the intercession of Elisha. And people knew that. And that's why even though King Joash has very little regard for God, very little regard for Yahweh, When it became known that Elisha was sick and dying, the king came down and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Which seems odd. Um, Something to say is someone someone on their deathbed. Um, But it would not have been strange to Elisha, and here's why. Because in 2 Kings 2, that's exactly what Elisha says as Elijah is being taken up into heaven. And so the king is recalling Elisha's words as Elisha is about to be taken up into heaven through death. Uh, The significance of the words 
lies in the fact that even though Israel was rejecting God, their evil king still recognized Elisha as God's prophet and, and recognized that through Elisha they had had some military success. Not a lot, but what they had was due to Elisha. And that's his prayers, his intercessions were more powerful than all of the chariots and all of the horsemen that the northern kingdom of Israel could muster. And even the king had to admit that. Now, from a human perspective, from Elijah's, uh, Elisha's perspective, he has no reason to trust or even be kind to any king of Israel because practically all of his prophetic ministry, he had been the object of those kings' scorn. They hadn't liked him. Uh, and again, every king of the north, every one of them, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and none were friendly to him despite this little encounter we're reading about right here. So nevertheless... How the kings treated Elisha was not the most important thing to Elisha. It didn't really matter to Elisha if people liked him or not. What mattered is that God had placed him in a spot. And he was told, you're going to proclaim my word from that spot. And that's what was most important to Elisha and that's what he did. How God wanted to use him was more important to him. And he'd long since committed his life to God. He'd asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And he'd been given that. So in verses 15 through 19, we find what amounts to a very odd way of prophesying uh, what was to come for Israel after he died. Take a bow and arrows, he said. And when God's prophet tells you to do something, it's a command from God himself. So Joash, although he, he doesn't really respect God, he respects Elisha because because he has to, he takes the bow and he takes the arrows and then Elisha says, put his hand on the bow. He puts his hand on the bow and don't miss the fact that Elisha placed his hands on the king's hands. So you've got two people's hands on this bow uh, and it's as if Elisha would be the one shooting the arrow. And he tells him, you know, open the window to the east. He opens the window to the east and he shoots and he does. And what does Elisha say about that arrow, that first arrow? The Lord's, Yahweh's, arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram. For you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. And that word for destroy, that verb destroyed in the Hebrew, means to complete, to finish them. You will finish them off. You will defeat them until you have finished them is what Elisha was saying. So despite the continuous evil, despite the continuing rebellion year after year, generation after generation, that Israel was engulfed in, despite that, God here was announcing, I'm sparing you. I am going to give you victory over your longtime rivals. I am going to give you victory over these people who have gotten the better of you over the course of the past few years. That is grace, beloved. Because I, Israel was an idolatrous nation, and this is grace. This is unmerited favor. Israel has done nothing at all to deserve this grace from God. God is giving Israel what they don't deserve, even for a king who does evil in his sight. But God's not without judgment either. Because Elisha's not done. What does he say next? Take the arrows, he tells Joash, 
And the king took them, and he tells the king, strike the ground, or literally smite the ground. So you're talking about a guy taking a bow and arrows and just firing arrows into the ground. And so he's supposed to do this, and it becomes clear because of what happens next that Elisha means for the king to do this continually. Just keep firing arrows into the ground. And yet, verse 18, after the third time, Joash stopped. Now, what do we see here? What do we not see here? We don't see Elisha here, this time, putting his hands on the king's hands. Notice that. This is just Joash firing the arrows now. It's not Elisha with his hands on the king's hands. And it's as if the writer of, of this portion of Second Kings wants us to know that whatever comes as a result of these arrows is going to be because of what's in the heart of Joash. It's not going to be because of what's in the heart of Elisha. God has announced a coming destruction. He has announced a finishing for Aram. The question is, how is Joash going to respond to this grace from God? And the answer is with something less than enthusiasm. With something less than faithful obedience. Joash strikes the ground three times and he stops. And right away we know something is wrong because of what Elisha, called the man of God, in verse 19, he becomes angry with the king. You should have struck it five or six times, Elisha said. Then you would have struck Aram until you have destroyed it, finished it. But now you will strike Aram, you shall strike Aram only three times. Now, what this is, and, and I know this is just strange, okay? It's strange. But what this is, beloved, it, it clear from Elisha's anger, clear from his words, is that Joash because of his lack of a wholehearted, enthusiastic obedience to the words of God's prophet, which is the words of the Lord coming through God's prophet, because of his lack of a wholehearted, enthusiastic obedience to the word of the Lord, the victory God was going to grant would not be as great as it could have been. And doesn't it seem like that's the case a lot of times for the people of God today? Our faith, or our lack thereof, the deficiencies in our faith, let's be clear, they do nothing to the immutable, unchangeable character and power and prerogative of God. There are, though, times when God uses our lack of zeal, our lack of obedience, our faithlessness to teach us lessons. He did it with Abraham all through Genesis. He did it with Jacob all through Genesis. And he does it with us too. Sometimes he can and sometimes he does withhold a measure of his full grace so that we might learn from it and ultimately be sanctified. Ultimately be made more holy. In the case of Joash, King Joash, God was going to give him and his wicked nation victory. What he should have done as soon as he heard that was the case was get down on his knees and repent of his sins and thank God and trust fully and trust completely, wholeheartedly to the finish, the word of the Lord. But that's not what Joash did. Like so many who are exposed to the grace of God today, and today because you're going to hear the gospel today, you're being exposed to the grace of God, beloved. I hope you realize that. His sin, his idolatrous heart, 
got in the way. He stopped at three arrows, and that was a demonstration of a lack of faith, a lack of gratitude for God's grace. So God reduced the blessing, turned it down, you know, turning down the knob on the oven. He turned it down. And therein lies some application for you and me this morning. And it's that anything less than a demonstrated zeal for Christ, anything less than full faith in the Savior, and we are setting ourselves up for God to withhold blessings from us He might otherwise give. We've got to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. But too often, we don't dial it all the way up. And that's what Joash, he wasn't even coming close to dialing it all the way up. And by the way, I'm not diminishing the sovereignty of God one bit when I say that. He already knows. In fact, he's already decreed all that will ever happen. Just read Isaiah 46. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not yet come to pass. All of his good pleasure is accomplished. All of his purposes are established. But this Joash incident teaches us, beloved, that our human responsibility before God is to zealously obey. It is to radically trust in the Word of God. It is to have an emphatic dependence, an enthusiastic dependence upon the one who in 1 Corinthians 15.57 says, has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has promised us victory through Christ. God has promised us victory through His Son. And yet we are walking around, so many of us who call ourselves Christians, we're walking around Carthage, we're walking around Moore County, and we're feeling defeated because of what we see on the news. Man, I had one of those days the other day. I was just watching. And I grew up in Charlotte, okay? My hometown is the object of national attention right now for all the wrong reasons. And then there's other things going on in the world and you just get down and you walk around and you're feeling defeated until you look at the Word of God and He says, He's given you the victory through your Lord Jesus Christ. How many of us are walking around supposedly victorious through Jesus Christ but with something a lot less than an enthusiastic zeal for Him? He has said, Satan will soon be crushed under your feet and cast into the abyss and ultimately into the lake of fire. Guess what? He wins. He's already won. And if you're in him, you have to. And yet we walk around so often defeated, so often pessimistic, when we have the reason to be most optimistic of all because we know Jesus is Lord and Jesus wins. You know, on the other hand, God has also promised that everyone who rebels against Him will suffer the second death, which is worse than the first. God has said that uh, this world will be destroyed with intense heat. He has said that there will be a, a recreation of sorts, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And how we respond... Now, in, in the world we live in, in the time we live in, to the grace of God we, we're being shown, how we respond to that determines if and how much of the blessing we will receive. 
So are you faithful? Are you faithless? Are you trusting in God's Word or are you just saying you trust in God's Word? Do you live half-hearted about it? Do you stop at a certain point in your obedience? Are you tepid in your zeal, if you can even call that zeal? The lesson from Joash and Elisa is to trust God with everything, always, fully, lest there be any enemy of your soul, any sin which, temporarily speaking, remains uncrushed. Well, that gets us to verse 19. Before we get to 20 and 21 which is the thing with Elisha's bones. and Let's look at verses 22 and 25 because I believe they shed light on the lesson we learned from in that resurrection. Verse 22 gives us some historical context for what happened with Elisha and King Joash. Hazael, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. That's Joash's father. So he's been king for a long time and he's oppressed Israel for a long time. Another evil king... By the way, Jehoahaz, another evil king, walking in the sins of Jeroboam. But verse 23, The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them. Why did he do that? Read on. Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. Now let's take a little walk backward through history. The significance of this requires us to take a little walk back through history. 2 Kings 10, verse 30. There's another king of, Je- uh, of Israel named Jehu. He's, a, a, he's a Jehoahaz's father, I think it is, if I've got my genealogy right. He was promised by God. He's an evil king too, but he's promised by God that your descendants will be on the throne to the fourth generation. This despite the fact that, again, he's wicked. So God has given him the throne But in the meantime, since he's evil, he cuts off portions of his kingdom and gives it to others during the time of his reign. Well, earlier than that, before the divided kingdom, 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. And what does God tell David? That your descendant will sit on your throne and your throne is established forever. Your kingdom shall know, that kingdom shall know no end. So so we've got that promise out there. And even earlier than that, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham and he reiterates that promise to Isaac and to Jacob. And what does he say? You're going to have many descendants. You're going to have a specific land. And by the way, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. That covenant, that Abrahamic covenant started with that promise. So here we are in 2 Kings. And it's hundreds of years now after David... And it's over a millennium, well over a millennium after Abraham. But the writer here is acknowledging that God's grace to Israel, and we're talking about the 700s B.C., God's grace to Israel stems from not from Israel's obedience, but from God's own promise. God's faithfulness stems not from their obedience, but from God's own promise. Understand, beloved, that your salvation is not because you are great. Your salvation is because God is faithful. Okay? His covenant with Abraham was the reason God helped Israel and these wicked kings out of the midst of their oppression. It's certainly what he appealed to. God appealed to this himself when he rescued Israel from Egypt, which we were just talking about with our kids in Sunday school. And it's why Aram had success but never total victory 
against Israel during the reign of Jehoahaz despite their sin. It's the Abrahamic covenant, which by the way, the whole Bible after Genesis 12, 15, 17 is about the Abrahamic covenant, but that's another story for another day. Come on Wednesday nights and you find out more about that. It's the Abrahamic covenant that the writer of 2 Kings appeals to here. The reason God gives Joash, another wicked king, grace and victory over Aram. Despite their sin, God blesses His people. Despite our sins, God saves us from our sins. In verse 24, when Hazael the king of Aram died, Ben-Hadad his son becomes king. Israel recovers some of their lost territory, defeating Aram. And how many times? Look at verse 25. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. One victory for each of the arrows he struck the ground with. God showed Israel grace, but the sad part is it could have been even better. Today, God has shown you grace because He has hopefully saved you from your sins in Jesus Christ. If you believe, if you repent and believe. And God has shown you grace because He's brought you to a place where the gospel is preached, where the word of God is preached, where the, where the saints gather. But are you faithfully obeying Christ to receive all the blessings of that? When you read through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, much of it has to do with the divided kingdom. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And there, When you read through that, and if you've been going through the Bible in a year plan we put on the bulletin, you've probably noticed this. There, there's this air of unconditionality with God's dealings with Judah, the southern kingdom. Why? Because that's the kingdom that was ruled by the sons of David. And David's the one who God made that, that royal covenant with. There's a sense that God would always be with Judah even when they disobeyed. Even though they would suffer badly, God was with them. That sense of unconditionality doesn't really accompany what's written about the north. It's as if ever since Jeroboam is set up in this rebellious kingdom, we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for them to be crushed. And yeah, that really that does happen eventually. 2 Kings 17, I preached from this uh, 2 Kings 17. I think it was in this room not too long ago, earlier this summer, if, if I'm not mistaken. But, but, but here, you know, they're, they're driven off into exile there. But here in verse 23, chapter 13, there is this appeal on behalf of the north to the Abrahamic covenant. There's this glimmer of hope. There's this silver lining that all, though all looks lost, though all might be destroyed, ultimately God will still be faithful to His people. So while Judah could always point to David and say God was with them, 2 Kings 13 is this little nugget to the ungodly saying you need to trust in Christ because you still have Abraham. You need to trust... Well, they didn't know the name of Christ. You need to trust in the Lord. You need to, remind, you need to be reminded that God is still going to be faithful to Israel because of Abraham. And really because of God. God is not willing to cast His own out of His presence. Even in their sin, their vile sin, God was unwilling to cast them out of His presence. Back in 2 Kings 8, 
19, we read that the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he had promised him to give him a lamp to him through his sons always. And now here in 13, the same is ultimately true of the north. He's not willing to destroy them on account of the promises he made to Abraham. Because God's character is at stake, and when God's character is at stake, he's always going to glorify himself. God was gracious to them. God's gracious to us. God had compassion on them. God has compassion on us. He still felt deeply for Israel even though they hated Him. He still feels deeply for His people today even though many hate Him. Yes, they would be exiled eventually. They would be judged for their sins. Even then though, God would not completely shut them out. Their exile would not be their end. God would not cast them out of His presence. And that's, it's that word cast that brings us back to verses 20 and 21. Some Israelites were burying a man. And they were surprised because this group of raiders from Moab would occasionally come in and here they were all of a sudden coming in. And so what do you do? You want to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. So they dump the body in the first grave they can get to and it just so happens to be the tomb of God's prophet, Elisha. And as soon as that dead man's body touches the bones of Elisha, a resurrection takes place. He was revived and he stands up on his feet. And the connection is this, that during Elisha's prophetic ministry, God had spared Israel through victories that came as a result of his prayers and his acts. But when Elisha died, and we see this in the next few chapters of 2 Kings. God removes the restraint from Israel and judgment will come. It won't be long before Israel is put into that tomb of exile. But even in the death of exile, here, here's the lesson. There's hope because if they will maintain contact with the words of the prophets of their past, if the people of God will stay in contact with the Word of God through the prophets and obey them, obey the words of the Lord, then their death may yet be followed by an unexpected resurrection. Their defeat may be followed by victory. As one commentator puts it, it is no coincidence that the first illusion in Kings to exile as an aspect of Israelite experience appears in a chapter that contains the first mention of the covenant with the patriarchs. Only a promise like that can offer Israel any comfort in the midst of the devastation that is shortly to endure. And I would add, it's also the first appearance of a resurrection in quite a while in this book. There is another one earlier. But this account of resurrection from touching bones is hope amidst death. It's salvation from exile. And beloved, we all enter this world effectively exiled. We, we all enter this world already cast out in a sense from the presence of the Lord on account of the fact that we are born dead. I quote so much Ephesians 2 but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
You were sons of disobedience. You were children of wrath. You were living according to the power of the, the prince of the power of the air, alienated from the life of God with a sinful nature upon which we said amen to our sinful nature. We commit sins and sins and sins. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. But God, in His loving kindness and His compassion, is unwilling to cast out His own. Beloved, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God chose those who would be His, and so all who are in Christ take comfort in the fact that His love is sufficient to overcome your sins. God's love is sufficient to overcome your sins, beloved. His life overcomes your death. His victory overcomes your defeat. And so the question to Joash is the question to us. How shall we respond to the victory God gives through our Lord Jesus Christ? Will we respond with half-hearted obedience? Will we respond with tepid enthusiasm? Will we respond with a less than zealous response to the grace of God. The Apostle Paul might say, may it never be. On the contrary, when God gives us arrows to fire at the enemies of our souls, we can by His power and we must by His command keep firing and firing, and firing, and firing, and firing. And never stop. Because His faithfulness never stops. And what we will find is that just as the bread and the fish never ran out by the Sea of Galilee that day, through Jesus we'll never run out of arrows. Take heart. And rejoice. Because God is not willing to cast out His own. The Lord will not forget those who are truly His. Instead, His grace abounds. His mercy abounds. And He blesses us more than we can ever ask or imagine. So are you His own? This morning, you measure yourself against what the Word has said. Are you His own? Come to the one whose body was placed in a grave and rose on the third day by the power of God so that you might be forgiven of your sins and given the gift of everlasting life. Come to Jesus. Repent and trust in the same God Elisha did. Trust in the Lord who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are. You are abounding in loving kindness and truth. You are faithful. We, we, we see this morning how your faithfulness is based on an appeal to your own holy character. You made promises to Abraham. And because you made promises to Abraham, you keep those promises to his descendants. And today the same is true for us. For all who are in Christ, we've already won through him. You've already given us the victory through him. So, Father, I pray that we might rest in the merits of Christ and walk in faithful obedience, make most of the opportunities you give us, and recognize that your blessings never run out. 
We ask this in the name of Jesus for your glory. Amen.